Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 62 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you will find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. It is Sunday, uh, on the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving's coming up on this Thursday, and um, your boy's going to be going out of town. Uh, going out for uh, a couple nights down to the Santa Cruz area with my girlfriend. We're staying at an Airbnb down there, going to do some hiking. Uh, unclear the status of the parks that are down there. We, you know, A lot of people have heard about the wildfires we've had here in California, so it's, it's not clear how much of the parks in the area are going to be open. Uh, worst case scenario, we're at a nice Airbnb. It's got a hot tub and a kitchen, and we can kind of hang out. Your boy's been reading a lot, taking my book down there. Uh, I mentioned probably at the end of the last episode, I'm reading Shibumi by Trevanian, which uh, is entertaining enough, but it's actually kind of a silly book. It's kind of uh, this sort of male fantasy fiction where it's sort of laughable at times. It's about this like uh, international assassin uh, who you know is like uh, striving for this. Uh, uh, mental state or whatever of Shibumi, which is like a sort of calm, all-knowing power, you know? Um, but he's also like the perfect lover. It's just, uh, I don't even want to describe it. It's sort of like dad fantasy fiction is sort of how I'd have to classify it. And it's got some good concepts in there. I mean, I, I, I've seen it referenced in the culture a lot. I think the first time I saw it was in Royal Tenenbaums. And I think I've actually, I think I may have filed it away on like my Amazon reading list after I saw it pop up in John Wick, which once you start reading it, you realize why it's sort of equated with John Wick, which is sort of like this, um, I don't know, mixture of like martial arts and fighting and that kind of international intrigue, espionage kind of novel, or a film rather. And, um, but uh, yeah, the novel is like, probably from the 70s maybe, but it has like this like really dated orientalism about it, you know, where it really romanticizes like... uh, Asian philosophy and culture, and it's all embodied in this white man who, you know, I don't know. It's just it's it's like your dad wrote the book. It sort of feels like if your dad was a, a serviceable writer, um, and I don't. All of a sudden, it, like for the last 150 pages, it's just talked about him, the lead, the protagonist, like caving, just exploring a cave, which seems to have nothing to do with the fucking plot, but entertaining enough, but also a very strange book. But um, you kind of have to take those detours sometimes, I guess. You know, if it was all Dostoevsky. Um, and classics, you know, I, even then things would get pretty boring. So frankly, I've kind of enjoyed this sojourn through Stephen King and Michael Crichton and this sort of dad fantasy fiction and, uh, now reading Shibumi. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I probably need something a little more substantive after this one. Uh, but who knows what that'll be. And honestly, it'll probably be another Stephen King. Actually, I have Dracula on the way too, um, cause I've never read that novel. So I have a copy of that coming. So, uh, maybe that'll be the next thing. Um, but yes, as I prepare for this vacation time, it just has meant that I've really had to, uh, just cram a lot of schoolwork. I sort of, when we, when we planned this vacation, I had just sort of assumed that we would have the week off for Thanksgiving from school. Turns out we don't. So I've had to do, you know, we're getting Thanksgiving and the day after off, but I've had to do the, the three days of homework I would have had to do next week before then. So it's been kind of a, kind of a slam. In the, like right now, it is 10.25 p.m. on Sunday. The podcast will be live in one and a half hours. So within a half hour of me 
ending this podcast, I have to export it and upload it, which is totally doable. Um, but it's, you know, the podcast for me is a big, well, it's been frustrating the last few weeks, if I have to be honest. You know, there's been one or two that were pretty good, but it was, it's, it's felt more difficult recently for some reason. Um, and I think it has something to do with that 75% thing we've talked about. Like I just, I even feel it at school. Like here we are in the last stretch of school. I've been doing great all semester and yet you start to feel things kind of slowing down. Um, it's like, I see the finish line and I don't know, it just gets harder all of a sudden. It should be getting easier, but for some reason it's getting harder. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's mostly psychological if I'm being honest, but you know, for the most part, the podcast is one of the highlights of my week. I really enjoy doing it. And so it just kind of sucks on nights like this where it's just another thing I have to get done. Um, but I will say if we have anything going for us tonight, it's quiet, it's late, the neighborhood has calmed down. There's no, uh, traffic noise pollution, um, the neighbors are gone and we're chilling. It's, uh, it's super relaxed. <sighs> so I hope everyone's doing okay. I hope you're looking forward to your holidays and maybe you're doing something special. Um, I probably talked about this last year. I'm just, as I'm saying this, I was just sort of picturing, actually, maybe a lot of you are not preparing for Thanksgiving because people fucking hate Thanksgiving right? It's like Christopher Columbus Day in that every time it's mentioned, people want to protest it, right? You know, traditionally we're raised to believe that Thanksgiving is the time where the Indians and the pilgrims came together in harmony and shared turkey and had a maze and had a fucking cornucopia celebration and all that sort of stuff. And of course, that's a romanticized sort of nonsensical, fantastical depiction of the relationship we had with the indigenous peoples of this country, when we arrived here. So I don't know what the holiday is rooted in, but of course I, I totally understand uh, the objection to it. But what bothers me is every time it comes up, people who bring it up, like they're teaching you something, you know, it's like every Christopher Columbus day, it's the same shit on Facebook about what a travesty it is. And it's like, I get it, but let's just call it indigenous people's day and move on with our lives. And by the way, as long as we're being dismissed from school and work, you can call it whatever the hell you want. You can call it fudge sickle fuck day. For all you want. As long as I don't have to go to school or work, I don't care what we're calling it. You know? Uh, because it doesn't... I mean, I understand people's objections. You know? I'm, I'm fine erasing it. We can call it something else if you want. But I also... I'm just surprised where the ire comes from. Because I don't think anybody, never in my life, have ever gotten together for Thanksgiving dinner with my family. And had anyone even remotely or passingly or whatever acknowledge whatever the historical symbolism their tradition is supposed to be rooted in. It's always been an excuse to just get together with your family and have food. You know? I mean, it's already a secular holiday, but it's like Christmas. Of course, there are very religious people who insist that Christmas should be Christ-centered and it's about the birth of their Lord and Savior, Jesus. But for the vast majority of people, it's not that. So, you know, I don't know. Let's just say happy holidays and just go home for a week or two, right? And just not do stuff. Let, so whatever we want to call that, let's just do that. So 
I'm not sure where the ire comes from, but maybe that's the boat that you're in. Maybe Thanksgiving is coming up and you're actively looking to work. I mean, that was the context this was originally brought up. And I had someone in my life who was saying that they were planning to work on Thanksgiving in a form of protest. And I was like, why don't you protest by watching your favorite show on Netflix, you know, and ordering Chinese food, you know, support a business that's going to be open. Uh, actually, maybe that's more Christmas related. I don't know. What, what do people do for Thanksgiving who don't want to have Thanksgiving dinner? Are there restaurants that are open? I don't know what's going to happen. But the point is, celebrate it however you want. But just go home. No need to work as a form of protest. Take, take the time off. Hopefully you work at a, at a place where you have paid holidays, right? Where you get paid time off. That would be awesome too. But uh, I don't know. That's not really the direction I wanted to go with this. I was, <laughs> I was imagining that tonight was going to be very calm. Tonight was going to be like the Sitting by the Fire podcast episode. In fact, I wanted to tell you a story. I've touched on it. I know it's come up in passing. But there's a couple things that hopefully will come together very quickly, and I won't spend too much time on them. But I've been reflecting a lot recently on the time that I served on a jury. For a couple reasons. I'm applying to UC, right? University of California. And uh, you can apply to all of the UCs at the same time. So I think I'm applying to like eight different UC campuses, you know. Cal, UCLA, uh, UC Davis, uh, etc. But, um, uh, you know, anyone who's applied to college knows that you have to do these personal insight questions, right? Or, or essays. And they all kind of orbit, I imagine they all orbit the same questions. You know, tell us about your leadership. How have you contributed to your community? Um, you know, what's an obstacle you've had to overcome, etc. Right? And uh, first, I just want to give a shout out to my brother because you know what, I, I mean, I, I, I engaged him on this project I had to do for anthropology and was fucking phenomenally impressed by him. And uh, when it came to my essays, because he has much more experience with academia than I do, and I just value his opinion, he gave me a lot of great feedback on them. And a lot of it was just about taking, he didn't use this language, but a lot of it, my takeaway from it was about taking a strength-based approach to writing about yourself, which is a challenge for me. Um, but one of the essays asks about leadership. And I recount this story of how, for me, the first time I ever really thought of myself as a, as a leader or really understood that other people could have perceived me that way was when I served on a jury. Um, so I'll get into that story. I'll just say writing about it has me thinking about it. Also in my stats homework, in this most recent chapter, a lot of the examples in the homework and the tests orbit you know, crunching numbers from jury selection, which felt fortuitous also. Uh, and I, over the last two nights, I actually watched the movie 12 Angry Men, which I think is like homework for people who serve on a jury. Like every time you sell, tell someone you're summoned for jury duty or you might be serving on a jury or any time jury duty comes up, people mention this film, 12 Angry Men, which is a classic, uh, which I'd never seen. Even when I was on a jury, I never saw it. So I finally saw it. Um, it's very good. I mean, it is a play. It's sort of, uh, it's like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and I think Mammoth. I, th I think Mammoth was involved in 12 Angry Men. I'm going to, I don't know. The point is, it feels like a play. So uh, as you watch it, it's an okay film, but it's, it really feels like a film dramatization. Um, but very good and very intriguing in, in the ways I couldn't have anticipated how much of my experience mirrored the film in terms of the personalities that were present in the jury room. You know, 12 Angry Men is about a, a homicide case and... At first, everybody believes that the person's guilty, except for one person, and the entire film is them hashing through the evidence of the case 
and spoiler alert, they're all swayed that the person's not guilty. Um, this plot point was bastardized. I think Polly in, in the Polly Shore film. I think it's called Jury Duty, but this was the premise also. Polly Shore. I think it was like Polly Shore believed uh, that he was uh, that the, the person was innocent, and he had to prove that they were. But um, but anyway, so I've just been thinking a lot about my time uh, with uh, the time I served on a jury, and I'd like to tell you about it. So this was in 2013 or 14. And like many people, I had gotten numerous jury summons in my life. And like most people, I threw them away. Uh, you know, I know it's in dereliction of duty. I understand it's part of our civic duty to serve on a jury if we're called. But we also understand on some level, you know, they can put as many warnings on it as they want. We know that they don't have the task force to really enforce this thing. Now, I don't know if I got a sort of escalated jury summons in that I don't know why I responded to this one without responding to any previously. I, I could have gotten something, some kind of notification that said, for real, you need to fucking come to jury duty. Um, but I went. And uh, you always have this, I don't know if it's true all over the country, but at least in California, you always have this option to call the day before, and you may be dismissed. And they say, actually, hey, don't worry about it, we're good. So that's like the fucking dream. I think you can do two things. I think you can defer it for one year, and then you, and this is probably what happened for me now that I think about it, but you defer it for one year, and then they say, now really, you have to fucking come. And everybody tries to call the day before, and hopefully they're dismissed, but your boy, not so lucky. Um, which maybe I should preface this whole story that way. I mean, the whole takeaway from the story is I dreaded it, and it ended up being a, one of the most important experiences of my life. So, you know, I'm sure you could apply that to a lot of things. But the point is, is that I show up, you show up at like eight in the morning, you're corralled with probably hundreds of other people uh, at, at the courthouse at 8 a.m. This was in Oakland, California. So this was the Oakland, Oakland courthouse. And at, I guess in pools of maybe 30 to 60, I don't know, you're taken to different courtrooms and the jury selection begins. Um, and from the moment you walk into the courtroom with 60 other people, there's the prosecuting prosecuting attorney, defense attorney, um, the defendant, the bailiffs, the judge, everybody's there. And from the minute you walk in, everybody's sort of standing, waiting for you to arrive and settle in. And, and from the minute you walk in, you feel the theatrics. You know, you feel like the, this is the beginning of the case. It's not about selecting the jury and then the case begins. The, the process has fully fucking begun. Like, I guess in some ways I feel like that's how you should treat it if you're doing it well. Like for me with a performance, like when I would show up to do a show, the show begins the moment I step into the theater, like before the show even starts, like as I'm doing sound check, as I'm doing this, like you're just on the job. Um, and that's how it feels in a courtroom. You walk in, the trial has begun. And they don't fuck around. They just start, they start explaining to you the broad strokes of the case. And in our, in our instance, it was a sexual assault case, an alleged sexual assault case, um, and you see the defendant, they tell you the broad strokes of what happened or what the, the, I don't know, the police report or whatever it is. And it gets a little blurry. Um, but I do remember having to read something. I remember having to sign something and you actually fell out a survey. And I believe that the surveys are used during the process. That's called the, I think it's pronounced the voir dire, which is where the prosecution and the defense just sort of take turns, um, uh, dismissing and, you know, by the time they've used all their dismissals, the, the, the jury is what it's going to be. So 
in batches of 12 or 14, they basically put people in the jury box and they ask you questions. You know, are you able to separate your um, biases or your preconceived notions or your prejudice to judge this case fairly? And the craziest part about this is, of course, people don't want to be there. So people try all sorts of crazy ways to get dismissed, which is, you know, they know on some level that if they have a bias that they can't, um, that they uh, can't put aside, then they're sort of disqualified from serving on the jury, right? The jury is supposed to be impartial. And if you can demonstrate that you're not an impartial person, then they have to dismiss you. Like out of a movie, the one person that really stands out in my mind is, you know, they're asking this guy, you know, this is a sexual assault case. You know, do you have any preconceived notions, you know, that would uh, 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 hinder you from uh, being fair in this case? And he was literally saying like, oh, yeah, uh, I believe all, all, all people accused of sexual assault should be murdered. No trial, no jury, just hang them. He just took a, a completely ridiculous stance that was indefensible, but he just was like, if I commit to this, they're going to have to dismiss me. And he starts ranting and raving about how the government's corrupt and the whole system's rigged and he doesn't believe in the court system and uh, all sorts of crazy shit. And the judge in this case, you know, was very, I don't know, uh, I really respected her. You know, she just sort of makes this guy look like an asshole in saying, you know, are you sure that you can't separate... Uh, aside your bias, you know, you're an adult, you're an adult man who's telling me that despite these feelings, you can't set them aside to judge this trial fairly. And every round he's having to say no, which is just making him look more and more stupid. So finally they realize this guy's cantankerous. We can't fucking do anything with him. Let's just fucking dismiss him. And, uh, I guess the counterpoint to that is they ask some really fucking personal questions when you're on the stand. And the counterpoint to that type of person who, look, I understand none of us want to do jury duty. I would, I've, you know, I've thrown my summons away. I, I want to get out of there too. But I'm not going to just like um, try to be a monkey wrench in the whole process so that I just fucking get kicked out. And it is your civic duty. And at some point, if you're summoned to do it or you're called to do it, you just have to fucking do it. And there was one woman uh, who was, I, you know, uh, they had re- reviewed her survey and, and she acknowledged that she was a victim of sexual assault at another point in her life. And they asked her about it on the fucking thing in front of everybody. And she, you know, was very honest. She said, look, that obviously was very impactful for me. I, I feel like it. I do have some bias here, but I can set it aside to be a fair-minded member of the jury. I still think that I can set it aside and, and judge this case fairly. And she ended up serving on the jury. There was an interesting moment for me, though. The minute I sat in the jury box, I never left. And I think I got asked a couple questions, but, you know, court has times. Like, you're, you're there from, like, 9 till 4 or 5 at, in the evening. You have, like, a two-hour lunch. But when court's over, court's over, you go home. So we got right up against the time I was seated in the jury box. I probably got asked a couple questions. And uh, we get sent home. The next day, we have to show up. And it's a whole nother fucking ball game because now the attorneys have had time to go home and really review the surveys and take notes and really look at people that they're interested in, especially the people who are already in the box. And so from where I'm seated in the jury selection box, I'm sort of seated closest to the prosecuting attorney's desk. And she opens this manila envelope that has post-it notes that are structured uh, the same way the jury box is structured. So I can see you know, there's a section for each member of the jury who's currently sat on there. And I can literally just calculate 
which post-it notes are for me. And there's just a fucking ream of them. And the minute I saw that, I said, I'm going to serve on this fucking jury. I don't know what it is that I don't know why I have all these questions, but it is what it is. Um, maybe now should be the time to tell you basically what the broad strokes of the case were because it came up in, in the voir dire. They were asking me about my bias or whatever. And I, and I did have a one point that I, I thought was going to be, you know, potential. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it would disenfranchise me, but I would leave it up to them. But here's the basic story of the case. The story is there's a man and a woman, uh, and they are at this local venue in the Bay area. I'm not going to say what it's called, but it's a very popular sort of community slash performance space. I've seen a lot of shows there. I had a friend of mine who formerly hosted an open mic at this space, which I had gone to many times. I drove by it every night on my way to work. I would get gas across the street from this venue and I would see these shows taking place. And there was a very famous band that would play there on a regular basis. They had a, a, a long-standing bi-weekly residency there. And a community of people would sort of congregate to see this band. And so you have a guy who shows up there. Um, I believe they were alone. I can't quite remember. But the point is, he happens to meet a girl there that night who's in a group of her friends. And everybody starts sort of co-mingling and they're all hanging out together. Everybody gets very intoxicated. They go back to this woman's apartment. She lives with her sister. Everybody's partying, smoking weed, uh, drinking a shit ton of alcohol. And at one point in the night, the woman is so drunk, she gets in a fight with her sister, who she lives with. And it's like a physical altercation. And they get separated and all sorts of shit. But at some point in the night, when everyone starts passing out, the alleged perpetrator has fallen asleep on the sofa or he's laying on the sofa while this young woman has retired to her bedroom. At some point, he enters her bedroom and tries to solicit her for sex. And of course, now their stories begin to diverge wildly. But um, I think what everybody agreed on was that there were multiple passes made, some intimate contact that was made. But at some point when it came time for sex, she did not want to have it. Um, and uh, basically, he violated her. And it wasn't like a rape. Uh, it was it was just penetration, and I don't even think he, like, finished. Um, one thing they kept coming back to is I think he was, like, masturbating in bed next to her or something like that. But the story goes that uh, they wake up the next morning, uh, hungover, and collectively, as a group, they go to breakfast. And, gosh, even as I'm telling this, I'm realizing this is, <laughs> this is getting mired in the details of the case is actually not going to be a, a fun story to listen to because it's so crazy. Um, but basically, there's just a lot of weird things that happen afterwards, which really sort of, you know, um, just blur the truth of what happened that night. They go out to breakfast together as a group. Um, she doesn't say anything, which is completely, completely reasonable. Um... Days go by. At some point in a, within the week, she like buys weed from him or something like that um, and doesn't say anything. And she has a boyfriend at the time, and it's only when she realizes that she's contracted genital herpes that she uh, tells her boyfriend what happened, and he convinces her to file a police report. And that's when the alleged perpetrator gets uh, brought in for questioning. Now, 
here is why serving on a jury is fascinating. One, you're surrounded by people who are just sort of brought together by chance. And like 12 Angry Men, and uh, 12 Angry Men, and exactly like what you would expect, it is a fucking, uh, it's a kaleidoscope of people and personalities from all walks of life, different races, different genders, um, different attitudes, different, di- different everything. And here you are thrust together, and now you're having to work collaboratively under very specific instructions. But you're, you know, you're having to sort of move as a group. Um, and you know, from the time you show up at the courthouse, except for your lunch, you're inseparable. You move as like one school of people. Um, and, uh, here you are uh, listening to this case and, you know, you think it's going to be like the movies and that you're going to have a, you know, you're going to have to listen to the case, but you're going to have a pretty strong idea of like whether the person's guilty or not. Um, you're going to deliberate and more or less everyone's going to come to the same conclusion, but nothing prepared me for the process of how, uh, just how bizarre things get when it actually comes to the trial. Because you think it's going to be someone telling the truth and someone's lying, and it was not that it was it was not that way at all. Both sides, both the defendant and the prosecution, or I should say, I don't, I don't even know if you would say that this girl is the prosecutor. I think literally this the I think the city brings charges against this person, but. Both people lied many, many times in their depositions and in their uh, interrogations about different things and probably for different reasons. But the amount of lies that had to be waded through just made it a very difficult uh, a case to decide. Um, and the testimonies were you know, conflicting and, uh, inconsistent, you know, people said things on the stand that they didn't say in their police interrogations. They contradicted themselves over and over again. And it was just a fucking mess. And by the end of the trial, you know, the only saving grace that you have as a jury member is not the clarity of what you know to be true, but the jury instructions that you're given. And this is really why jury duty is a, a formative experience, which is it's not about deciding the truth. It's not about knowing what happened. It's about coming to a decision based on very specific parameters that you're given by the court. Um, and I think this is why this sort of comes up as sort of a leadership opportunity for me. But a couple things happen. You hear the case, you hear the testimony. Um, and basically when it's time, when both sides close their case, they have their closing arguments, d- deliberations begin. And during the course of deliberations, uh, you just sort of show up to the courthouse and you just hash out the case. You can ask whatever questions you want. You can summon items from evidence. You can be shown video if you want to. You can see transcripts of the interviews. You know, it's basically your job to piece things together. The first thing you have to do in a jury deliberation is you have to elect a four-person from amongst yourself. And the minute we sit down, you know, I didn't volunteer myself, um, we select an older gentleman from amongst ourselves. I'm not sure if he was very passionate about doing the job, but it, it just, it's, it fell on this one guy. <clears throat> As we start the deliberations, you know, the way they're sort of forming things is they're saying, well, let's just kind of go around and say how we're feeling and just sort of share our general thoughts. So we have like, you know, maybe an hour and a half of this and just going around the circle, people saying how they feel, what they think the verdict is and why they think that. And immediately it's like the movie 12 Angry Men where you, you really feel who wants to get the fuck out of there, who's really been paying attention, who hasn't been paying attention, and who's really just trying to play 
I don't know if the word is diplomacy. I'm not, I'm not sure the word I'm looking for, but they're basically just trying to come to a compromise, not where everybody is confident about the position they're in, but how quickly can we just get a consensus is probably the word I'm looking for. How quickly can we get a consensus amongst ourselves so that we can fucking get out of here and move on with our lives? And it becomes this very tense struggle between the people who are trying to be thorough, who are trying to really come to an understanding about the details and the people who want to get the fuck out of there. And, you know, you're both really impressed with certain people and really disappointed by other people. You know, there was one older man, much older man, probably the oldest person on the jury who was seated to my left throughout the entire case. And when you show up to the jury, you're given a notebook. You can't take it home, but it's basically a place for you to take notes Um, it's your individual notebook that you have for the duration of the trial, which you surrender at the end of it. But, you know, these are your notes that you can look on, look at when you're in the deliberation room and just basically sort of, um, uh, draw on if you need to. This guy never took a single note. Even in deliberations, you realize that he can't, he can't recall important names of people who were a part of the case. He has, he's basically not been listening the entire time, which is very disappointing. There's another guy who's sitting across from me through most of the, of the deliberations who's, you know, a little older than middle age, probably 40 years old, but a, clearly a very successful businessman. And his whole goal is to get the fuck out of there. He has a team of people who are needing him. There are things that need to get done at work that he can't do because he's having to spend his time at the courthouse. Um, and we have this other guy who's just clearly out to get this person. Like, he's not listening to reason. He's not stating arguments for why he believes this person is guilty. He's just like, making like, you know, I know these people, I know what they're about, they're guilty. And all of these things are, are mirrored in the, in the film 12 Angry Men. So it's kind of bizarre that they were, uh, you know, I had literal examples of those in my actual experience. There's one moment during the deliberation where the four person is seated to my left and we're kind of in this sort of heated exchange, but we're kind of hashing out an important detail of the case. And Someone asks him a question, and just long enough that I, I, I would look at him. I mean, he, he sort of is delayed in responding, and it just sort of, oh, what's going on here? And I look at him, and his face is frozen. And all of a sudden, like someone flipped a switch, it's like I, he's perspiring on his upper lip. And I forget the gentleman's name, but someone calls his name and says, you know, hey, hey, are you Okay. And he's just not responding. He's just like, and I'm like, is he in thought? Is he feeling anxious? What's going on? And he's just non-responsive. And it's like, immediately, it's like it all dawns on us at the same time. I think this dude's having a stroke. So there's there's a panic button in the, in the, in the deliberation room that if you hit it, the bailiff comes running. So we hit the button and they come up and, you know, medical team sort of shows up and they treat this guy. Uh, we're dismissed from the deliberation room into another deliberation room while they're sort of hanging out with this guy. And we never see him again. He basically gets dismissed from the jury. And then it's time to elect another four-person. And, you know, I think because it was because I was so, I was advocating very strongly that we just sort of, uh, you know, rather than just go in circles and try to come to the truth, like we were given very clear uh, instructions by the court um, on how we need to sort of frame our thinking. And that was sort of how I was advocating the entire time. But we took a poll on who the next four person should be in. Uh, I didn't suggest myself, but I was the unanimous decision for everybody else. So that was, uh, kind of a, that was just a strange moment in my life. You know, I didn't realize that people were seeing me that way. And I don't know, it was just kind of a game changer. I remember going to lunch one time and this business person, 
which now that I think about it, I feel like he, his motivation was kind of a little more nuanced, which is he was trying to get out of there. And I think he saw the, the, the efficacy of my, or the way in which my perspective could really, um, streamline the process of us getting the fuck out of there. But, uh, yeah, just having a chance to talk with him and just kind of hearing how he saw me. I don't know. It was just, uh, I don't know. He wasn't a father figure, but it was kind of like that. It was just, it was a, there was something paternal about him. I don't know. It was weird. I don't know. Even as I'm telling this whole story, it sounds like a bunch of fucking bullshit. I'm kind of even regretting I'm even talking about it. Um, because it was a very special experience to me. And as I'm talking about it, it sounds like I'm just, I sound fucking, I don't know. It's all a fucking nightmare. And, um... And so it sucks that this, this, this is the documented storytelling of this important part of my life. But also I'm like kind of regretting even telling you the details. Like I've never really talked about the trial with anyone, uh, other than sort of interesting moments from the process. I've never really talked about the details before. And also as I'm thinking about it, I would hate for anyone involved with this case, even though I'm not giving you any identifying information to like recognize themselves in this podcast. So, um, I don't know, kind of a weird thing, but, um, I will say this, this was sort of the embarrassing moment of the trial. You know, I was elected the four person, that's fine. But basically that means you have to sign the jury decision and submit it to the court. And it's not like the movies where you have to read it, the court reads it. But you are, you know, you, you sign the, the verdict. And when we were given the documentation for the verdict, and you know, you're, you know, someone being charged is not just guilty or not guilty. Oftentimes there are a number of charges that you have to come to decisions on. You may find them guilty on one charge. You may find them guilty of another charge. You may find them guilty of one thing, which qualifies, you know, whether you can convict them on other things or whatever. So there's a constellation of decisions that you have to get made, which is very confusing because none of us understand the law. And so you're given this sort of complicated documentation and you're trying to use this as, you know, you're trying to return a decision that that meets all these, um, parameters. So we have this moment where we're looking at it and we're not understanding, you know, uh, we do find him guilty on this count, but if we find him guilty on this count, does that mean we also have to return a verdict for these two counts or, or, or not? And so we, we summon the bailiff up and we ask her and she says, I can't, I can't uh, give you an answer. I'm, I'm literally not allowed to talk to you about it. So we've had to do the best that we could. And we had this horrible moment. I mean, you know, this trial, it's not a long trial. It was probably like two and a half weeks. And there's this moment where you come back into the courtroom and, you know, the, you know, the defendant is obviously, this is a fucking important decision, right? So we pull back into the thing. They uh, turn in the verdict to the judge. We're all seated there. She opens it up, looks at it, reads it. And she has, I see in her face this moment of realization. And so she makes this statement to the court and she says, uh, in the event that uh, the jury finds, you know, this person guilty, they have to do X, Y, and Z. So basically, without, you know, she's kind of, it's like a spoiler alert. She basically has to announce that the, that the verdict is guilty, and yet there's still this problem on the paperwork that we have to literally be dismissed and deal with and correct. And uh, so that was a hard moment, because when you exit the courtroom, you walk by the defendant. I mean, you could reach out and give him a high five if you wanted to. 
So you have this horrible moment of walking in and then having to exit out. And now he knows that he's probably going to be found guilty and you're the people who are responsible for it. So you have to correct the paperwork and then you have to come back in. And as I'm thinking about it, I remember when we, they read the verdict. So we did find him guilty. Um, on probably on two different things. I can't remember what the charges were exactly, but he was found guilty of, of sexual assault. And there was one other thing too, and I can't remember what it was, but I did not look at him when they read the verdict consciously. I didn't want to see his face. Um, I didn't want to think about it. You know, I didn't want, I didn't want to live with that. And, um, you know, since that, since the trial, I, I know we made the best decision that we could, given the information that we have, and I know that the decision that we made was guided by the, the court instructions. I mean, that was the thing that in our deliberations we kept coming back to over and over again. People would say, I feel this way, and it was about saying, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you think you know is true, and, it doesn't, and especially it doesn't matter how certain things you believe might influence your decision. You're being asked to think about this case in a very specific way. You also have to be very clear on the burden of proof. You know, it's not about being pretty sure that they're guilty. They need to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, there's the presumption of innocence. You know, the burden of proof is on the prosecution, um, which is, it sounds easy to say, but it's, it's, it's just not how we operate, you know? So I know that we made the best decision that we could at the time, but now when you, when you live with that decision, when you are responsible for a verdict that's returned for somebody, and thankfully you're not there for sentencing, so you honestly don't know how that, how that verdict impacted someone's life. But probably significantly, right? Uh, is this, this person probably has to live as a registered sex offender, right? Uh, has to go to jail. Which, by the way, is insane that, you know, he was in custody during the duration of the trial. So even if he gets found innocent, he's been spending the last few weeks in jail every day. And putting on a suit to show up for court, but at the, you know he's been spending the night at fucking jail while we go home. Which for me meant going to work. You know, I worked at a restaurant at the time, so my shifts were at night. So I didn't. You know, some people obviously wanted to be at work. I would have loved have loved a two and a half week break from working just to go to court every day and have my nights to myself. But I got to go to court all day and then go to work. So. But now that I look back on that, I, I have to be honest and say, everybody lied. Everybody was duplicitous. You know, we found him guilty within the confines of specifics of the law, right? What the charges were, what he did do, what, and what we believe he did beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet, it's a fucking, it's not an easy situation. It's not, it's not clear by any stretch of the imagination. And once you're inside that courtroom, I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple takes, takeaways from it that I was really surprised by. Every single person who worked in the courtroom was female. There was not a single male staff member. There was one. He was actually one of the court stenographers who was a gay man. And who knows, maybe they weren't a gay man, but if I had a bit money, I would say that they were a gay man. Everybody else was female. Both the prosecution and the defense attorney were Asian females. The judge was a black female. One of the bailiffs was a black female. One of the bailiffs was a, a, a Hispanic female. And the court stenographer was a Hispanic female. <clears throat> and the judge was a fucking badass who actually sent me a personalized note. 
Uh, I think they do that for everybody. It's just sort of thank you for your service kind of thing. But I had it for a while. It probably is in a box somewhere. But um, but uh, just sort of acknowledging, like, as the four person, there are certain responsibilities that come with it. And, and you know, just uh, kind of saying thanks for your for serving your civic duty or fulfilling your civic duty, et cetera. Um, but yes, I don't know. Maybe there was something else to say about that. I don't do this episode is a fucking clusterfuck. I don't know how I feel about it, but, um, <laughs> your boy's about to go on vacation, so I'll come back better rested and I'll have more to say, but, um, but yeah, other takeaways from jury duty. I guess the thought that I think of is, look, there's a, a constellation of people in that jury box and there's a lot of people who are eager to get the fuck out of there. And if your freedom really rests in a jury of your peers, it's a fucking roll of the dice. I'll be honest with you. You know, you have to do some pretty careful, critical thinking to make sure that you're doing your job right, that you're following jury instructions and that you don't. I mean, you really have to be a pretty discerning person to do your job effectively. And I'm just saying, everybody in that courtroom who works on a day-to-day... I mean, here's the thing about court. Here's what court boils down to. If there was no jury, it would have been over in one day. Meaning, both attorneys know exactly what the fuck is going on and have done this umpteen times. The judge knows exactly what's going on. The single thing that makes a trial long is explaining what's happening to the jury. Every single moment of the trial, you are being told what is taking place, how you're supposed to see and experience what's taking place, what you can't, you know, what you can't let influence your decisions or how you're hearing certain bits of information. You're, I mean, like the movies, you're literally told what you've just heard needs to be stricken from your minds. What you, you know, if somebody, you know, there's some sort of objection raised, you have to ignore what you've heard, no matter what it is. You cannot let that influence your decisions, even if it's damning. Whether it is, uh, whether it, aims toward the person being guilty or innocent, you have to ignore it. And if in deliberations, like your job of being an honest jury person is, is letting that go. As you're talking about things, people would say, yeah, but still this thing. And you say, you cannot let that influence your decision. You know, these are the rules that we're all playing by. And part of him getting a, this person getting a fair trial is the jury instructions. You know, maybe that is a damning piece of evidence, but you know, according to a fair trial, it's it's inadmissible. So we have to fucking dismiss it, right? Anyway, I'm just saying, you know, if you ever find yourself in a fucking jury case or the, you know, a defendant on a jury trial, it's by no means, you know, the odds of you getting a fair trial are, are pretty fucking steep, right? Like many things in life, people are eager to return to their lives and it's not really about doing a good job. You know, they get to just sort of, turn in their verdict and go home, you know, without really, you know, I just don't think many people consider the, the ramifications, right. Of, of the decision that they're making. And, uh, it's hard. But I continue to think about it. You know, I just don't know. I know we made the best decision we could. And I, I, I'm, you know, confident we made the right decision given the information that we had, but I don't know that it's true. You know what I mean? I don't know. There's just doubt. I don't know what happened. <laughs> there are so many details of what transpired that are that will never be clear. Very strange experience. 
So two things. I think I talked about this whole thing is you know about being a leadership opportunity. So one, being elected as the four person, you know, and maybe I didn't convey it clearly enough, but that was a that was a big responsibility that was conferred on me by people who thought I would do it well, which which just sort of made me think, oh wow, shit, I didn't know people experienced me this way. The other part was at the end of the trial. You know, it's it's obvious to say that juries decide cases, but you know, the minute the trial is done and you're dismissed, you basically just disperse. <laughs> you know, you exit the courtroom first and you just sort of go back to your life, um, and you never see these people that you spent a shit ton of time with for the last two and a half weeks. You just never see them again. But the minute you leave the courthouse, you exit through this special elevator. At least in Oakland, you do. And when the the, the minute that the elevator doors open, you're facing. Uh, people from the office of the attorneys who tried the case, both the defense and the prosecution. And they're all waiting there with their business cards because they want to interview you. So basically, as you enter, you're basically like, you know, like like being in Vegas where people try to hand you flyers, you know, for strippers or escorts or whatever it is. They are begging to do a debriefing interview with you so they can hear about what happened inside the deliberation process because that is their data, that's their research, you know, jury selection is probably the most important part of trial, and that is what they need to know to try their case, right? They need to know who to pick. You know, they try to collect data on demographics, and, and you know, they just crunch numbers, right? So as much insight as they can get to this process that they're excluded from, they want to get. So because we found this person guilty, I didn't really feel comfortable engaging with the defense, but I did take the prosecuting attorney's business card from their office, Um and they did send me some kind of questionnaire, and I filled it out and just sort of shared about our experience. And it's things like, you know, what one bit of evidence was the most decisive for you, or what parts were more confusing, or, or whatever, and, and what was the temperament inside the jury room, and that sort of stuff. And some things I felt comfortable opening up about, some things I was less sort of transparent about. Um, but I, my question to them was, I said, you know, when I returned on the second day of the voir dire, the, the, of the jury selection... I saw a litany of post-it notes under my name and just the way I was engaged specifically, which I don't think I mentioned it, but where this, you know, where this, this, these people met was at this place that I had frequented and felt somewhat familiar with. And, you know, it didn't disenfranchise me or didn't disqualify, didn't disqualify my, (laughs) Jesus Christ. It didn't disqualify me from serving on the jury. But, uh, there was just a bunch of questions for me as I was in the jury box. And I just said, what, what was that about? And she said, you know, we identified you as a leader and we knew that if we could convince you of our case, that you would have an impact on the other jury members during deliberation. And that was flattering. <laughs> it, uh, it just sort of changed the way I thought about myself for a while. And I'm not saying I transformed overnight, but it's something I still think about. And there's just something about that disconnect between the way we see ourselves and maybe the way other people see us that is, you know, sometimes we get that insight. You know, there's a moment where people can reflect how they really see us. And sometimes it's just surprising how people see you compared to how you experience yourself. I mean, and I think I think when we're younger, we're more receptive to these things. I think it actually gets harder as you get older because your self-concept is sort of sort of calcifies in a lot of ways. But I remember growing up, I you know, I didn't think people liked me. I didn't think I had any, I I, I didn't have any friends. I, I, I was kind of a loner. I had like one friend that I hung out with, um, when I was much younger 
excuse me, God, I got like boogers in my nose, but I had like one friend that I hung out with when I was growing up. And I remember that was like the way I talked about myself amongst my family, which is like, I didn't have any friends and I was, I was confused by it, you know? And I remember years later running into my second grade teacher and, uh, and telling her about this, you know, I said, I, I've always looked back on that time when I was confused because I, I thought I didn't have any friends, you know, I, I never understood why that was. And, and she was like, well, at one point I pulled the class on who they wanted to sit next to. And you were the number one choice by a long shot. The majority of the class wanted to sit next to you. And that was such a bizarre thing. And what, what is especially strange, and I don't know what it means exactly, but when she said that, I was so quick to onboard it. I was just like, oh, wow, that's great. And for some reason, as an adult now, I don't feel, I don't, I don't feel that in, as enthusiastic or as receptive to even positive feedback as I was at a younger age. You know, I can reflect back and hearing, oh, being elected the four person of the jury or having this person who's, you know, incredibly well-educated, who's a practicing attorney, um, while I was fucking serving, I was working at fucking restaurants in the evening, right? I fucking, (laughs) I was a struggling musician, you know, like I didn't have a lot of success to lean on. You know, I felt really inadequate, you know, being in that courthouse in front of people who were educated and successful. And, you know, I felt like I was fucking... I don't know. I didn't know why I was there. I didn't know why I was selected, if I'm being honest. And to have them say that, you know, maybe they were just trying to butter my biscuit. But I, you know, that really took, you know, and I didn't take it on right away. But there was even, resi- you know, I even kind of resisted a little bit, you know. Even me saying now, I'm, I'm saying, well, maybe they were buttering my biscuit. That's just, I'm, I'm just apologizing, you know. I'm trying to put some distance between myself in that compliment. But I don't know what it is about being younger. And even when you're being told that you're wrong, I don't know. There's just, I feel like we're more... I don't know. I feel like we're more receptive when we're younger. I don't know what that's about necessarily. Anyway, what I'm really feeling right now is, you know, there's these stories, you know, every week I try to show up and just talk about what's on my mind. And yet there's these stories that happen in my life that I, that I hope we get to, and there's still a bunch of them, but I hope we get to them eventually. I try to come to them organically And when I talk about them, it's like they're really important to me, you know, and I want them, you know, as much for myself as for listeners, like I want this to be like a repository of important things in my life. And when I tell an important story about the time, like, like the time I was on jury duty and it just feels like I feel like a fucking bumbling idiot, it, uh, I don't know, it's disappointing to me. Anyway, I'm sure you can hear those uh, sirens in the background. We'll let those go by. Jeez, man. Wow. <laughs> Something's going on, man. I almost feel like I hear a helicopter also. Damn, man. Holy crap. 
Whew. Sound like a fucking cavalcade, man. You know, actually, I completely forgot about this, but I left my girlfriend's place last night. I had to come home and do some work. And there was, you know, against the night sky, it was very hard to see, but there was just something in the sky, and it was like a pillar of smoke. And I was like, oh, there must be a fire somewhere. And I'm not an ambulance chaser normally, but I just sort of followed it. You know, I could kind of see in the general direction of where it was. It wasn't that far. It was maybe a mile away. And so I kind of steer my car around, and I come up, and I get about you know, a major intersection away from this fire. And I just see the flames. I see the smoke billowing up in the sky, you know, and I see the fire engines with their lights going and they're, you know, they're blasting the building with water. And, um, yeah, I completely forgot about that. You know, I used to work at this place uh, here in Berkeley up on this major street called Telegraph Avenue, which is like near the UC Berkeley campus. But there's like a lot of bars and restaurants and stuff. And when I first moved out here, I worked at a restaurant uh, called Raleigh's. You know, one of my first records is actually called Raleigh's Zone, and it gets the name from that. But I worked there for like four years, and I probably would have worked there much longer, even though it was kind of a dead-end job, because that's what you do when you're younger. And you kind of find these things that you just sort of slide into and you get comfortable and you stay there much longer than you should, mostly because you like the people that you work with, but especially in food service, it's real fucking sticky because it's like you always have walking around money, you always have cash in your pocket at the end of your shift, and there's just perks. Like, it's you're usually working with young people who like to party and a lot of people are hooking up, and it just becomes like your social life, you know? And especially if you're working in an area where there's like a constellation of bars, you're kind of in a... You know, I don't know, a happening town. You just get to know people who work at other restaurants. And so it's very easy when you get off shift to just kind of bounce around and go visit people. And you're just kind of in the industry, you know, and you just have these connections at different places where you can kind of show up and feel like you're in the in crowd, right? And you may get some free drinks and you just kind of meet other people. And, you know, it is what it is. Like, I, I feel like I watched this documentary at some point about people who were working in New York in the, um, uh, mixology sort of world, right? And you have these people who are like, they're big stars in this whole world of mixology or whatever. So I'm not saying it's on that level, but it's, I'm just, I, I relate to that on some level. But I remember one time I was playing the show in San Francisco and this was like in November of like 2003 or something like that. And I was playing the show at Bizarre Cafe in San Francisco, which I think has since closed down or at least has changed ownership and is not a music venue anymore. But Bizarre Cafe in San Francisco used to be this kind of cool place where there was no PA. It was just a very small room. You could probably fit maybe 30 people in there comfortably. And even then, they're kind of standing around. There's not chairs enough for everybody. But they would have unplugged music. And it's a lot of acoustic or folk or roots music or whatever. So shows that would play there, you would play to a very small group of people and you would be completely unplugged. And uh, I had a gig there, you know, and... uh, I remember I get home, I drive back from San Francisco, living in Berkeley at the time, and I get back to my place, and I put uh, a pizza in the oven, you know, I I turn the heat up, oven heats up, I put a frozen pizza in the oven, and uh, I basically get a call from someone that I work with, and she's like, "Uh, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing, just chilling. And she's like, oh, you got to come to Raleigh's. And I was like, oh, yeah? She goes, yeah, it's on fire. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's jumping off. You guys are partying. What's going on? She's like, no, it's it's on fire. <laughs> like, literally, it's on fire. And I was like, oh, shit. And so I basically just get in my car. I start driving up to work. 
And like the like last night, where I see this uh, smoke billowing into the sky, there's just something spooky about smoke against the night sky because the only thing that's illuminating it is the fire. So it's this very black on black kind of weird spooky thing. But as I'm getting toward the UC Berkeley campus, I just see this huge pillar of smoke just billowing into the sky. And one of the most surreal moments of my life is just parking nearby, walking up, you know, towards the intersection and just seeing a fucking sea of people watching this building burn. You know, it was a, it was like three restaurants on the downs. It was a big building on the corner of like Telegraph and Dwight. I think it was Dwight. No, Durant. I think it's Durant. Durant and Durant and Telegraph Avenue. That's what I meant to say. All right, I'm all fucked up. Yeah, on the corner of Durant and Telegraph Avenue. Caddy Corner to Amoeba Records, which is a very famous uh, record store. But there were three restaurants on the bottom floor, and there were three floors of apartments. Maybe even four, but there were three or four floors of apartments um, upstairs. And uh, the entire building was on fire, and thankfully no one died. No one got hurt. Um, But it's just insane to see this place that had been your place of employment for four years just in flames, burning in front of you with fire engines and just, you know, um, streams of water just sprang at the building. Just fucking, just fucking crazy. The weirdest part is it's a sea of people just watching it burn. And it's a spectacle and I get it. It's entertaining. I completely understand why people are looking at it. The weird part for me is when you've been working in that area for a long time, you know, it's not like you're special. It's just people recognize you, you know, we all kind of work and live in the same area and it's just part of your community. The weirdest part for me is as I'm walking through this crowd, I'm catching eyes with people who I know know me and are recognizing me as someone who worked there and they're not saying anything. And that's fine. I don't want to, and I don't want to talk about it necessarily, but that was just a, it was a weird moment where it was like, it's because people didn't know what to say, I'm sure, but it was just a weird moment, like meeting eyes with people who I could see recognize me and I could see them putting things together like, oh, you work at that place that's on fire and not saying anything. Like, even like, oh, fuck, this is crazy, right? Just saying nothing. But uh, in some ways, you know, I think we all feel this way a lot of times when things happen in our life. At the time, it was very disorienting, and yet it kind of changed my life. It put my life on a whole other direction, you know? I, I ended up working at this, like, Mexican restaurant that was just, like, right, you know, I mentioned Amoeba Records was Caddy Corner to it. Like, two doors up from that was this Mexican restaurant. I worked that for like seven months, which was a fucking nightmare. I actually knew I had to quit when I fucking got into it with one of the customers. Like this dude comes in one time, younger guy, and I don't know, I just didn't fucking like him. I just thought he was a nerd. He was just kind of a geeky dude, and I just didn't like his attitude. And uh, I don't know. That's just the way life is. You're just not going to like everybody, right? And there's just something about this guy that I didn't I didn't fucking like. And I'm like bartending. I'm working at the bar. And he comes up and he gets a beer. And I, I just don't fucking like this guy, you know? And uh, I serve him a couple beers and he leaves and he doesn't tip. And uh, that's fine. He probably, maybe he was in protest. I don't, I don't know what the fuck it was. But the next time I see him, he comes, he sits at the bar. And I card him and he goes, oh, uh, he, oh he's, he just sort of references the fact that he's been here before. He's like, oh yeah, I'll show you my ID. Yeah, you, you may not remember, remember me. And I was like, oh, I remember you. I remember you as the guy who doesn't tip. And it was one of these things where like he just wasn't prepared for that at all. And I think I probably felt empowered to like give this guy a little shit because I, I think he was just, he just came across as kind of a weak person. Like I just knew he wasn't going to push back. Like if the dude had a bunch of tats and seemed really aggressive, I would not have fucking said that. But I think I was in a place where I was unhappy in my life. I was, you know, I hated my fucking job. I hated working where I was working at. And I just like, 
was a, like a bad person at that time. Now, I'm not saying categorically a bad person. I just mean, you know, I was fed up. I was a shitty employee and, uh, you know, it just impacted the way I, I treated people. And, um, and I was like, Oh, here's a guy I can take this out on. And, uh, yeah, I just, he had like a couple he, like he wanted to leave, but he had like half a beer left. And I remember him just saying, well, see, you know, we, cause we had this sort of exchange or whatever. And he's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm poor. I'm a college student. I was like, well, then you can't fucking afford to go out, man. You know, like, for, I mean, I, I actually believe this. I think when you go out, if you can't tip, you can't afford to eat, right? That's what we do in this country. You know, if you go to a place where the server is expecting a tip and you can't afford one, then you don't get to eat. You know, you don't just get to decide not to tip, you know, and I don't want this to turn into the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs, but that's just how I feel about it. You know what I'm saying? That's just the custom. That's what we do. I've even, when you work at a restaurant, you have fucking bizarre things that people do. Like I remember one time at the same restaurant, I was like waiting tables and this dude like buses his own table and doesn't tip. And I think in his mind, it was like, oh, I'm just going to do your job for you so that I don't have to tip you. It was fucking truly bizarre. Like he literally, and I'm not supposed to be saying literally, he took his plates and put them in the bus cart. Like, you know, you, you see busters going around with those bus trays and those carts. He just buses, literally buses his own table. And I know I'm not, I'm not supposed to be saying literally, but he literally buses his own table and literally didn't tip. And it literally pissed me off. Anyway, your boy is crazy. Your boy is losing his mind. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get away from these meta commentaries on the podcast, but I don't want to say this is the worst episode we've ever done, but it's 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 feeling pretty awful right now. And I'm, I might regret saying that because, you know, there's plenty of times where I think the episode goes bad, and at some point I, I happen to listen to it, and I go, oh, it wasn't that bad. But we'll see. I mean, you know, I don't know, man. I'm not sure what we've learned today. Um, the episode is going to be live in 38 minutes <laughs> and, uh, you know, but that's fine. I'm going to be on vacation. So, um, how do I want to end here? I want to say happy Thanksgiving, whether or not you celebrate it or whatever that means to you. It certainly doesn't, it has nothing to do with indigenous people and, uh, pilgrims to me. So, you know, enjoy your food, you know, hopefully you're able to spend some time with your family. If you're not, you know, FaceTime, I'll give them a call. You know, um, you know, take care of yourselves, be safe. And, uh, you know what? Let's just fucking put a pin in it, folks. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars. Give your boy something to be happy about. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, let's, let's put it there, folks. Until the next time, thank you for listening, thank you for your time, and ciao for now. <laughs>